and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. I'm Antifada producer Andy. <laughs> That's what the AP stands for. <laughs> it took me like a year and a half to figure it out. But that's I what never it knew. For. Know yourself, Andy. Know yourself. And we are all back together again after various journeys various people have gone on. Um, and with the addition of a guest today. Oh my God, I'm already fucking this up. No, I'm not. I'm doing great. No, you're right. I am a guest. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Shuja Hader. He's a writer at large at The Outline and a contributing editor at Viewpoint Mag. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, man. Good to have you. Thank you. Glad to finally be here. Hell yeah. How's everybody doing? Anybody get up to anything fun lately besides going to fucking 17 countries like Andy <laughs> just did? I mean, it's it's pretty hard to top that. I, I've just been sitting in my house mostly trying to recover from the various illnesses that I've had this winter and watching... Not coronavirus, folks. Not coronavirus. Definitely not. And watching my new kitten interact with Frida Gatto because this kitten is really cute. But she's kind of annoying and she wants to be friends with Frida so badly. And Frida just ain't having none of it. Well, I had a uh, great night the other night. I went to Littlefields in Brooklyn. I went to the Means TV premiere show, which was really, really incredible. Uh, there were bands. Bryn from Beep Beep Lettuce, friend of the show. Her band Stay Inside played. They were excellent. And I also saw one of the feature films from Means TV. It's called Sarasota Dream in Half. And uh, it was really, really incredible. In fact, so good this situationist-inspired, ambient, surrealist flick that I think we might have to get them on the show. But in the meantime, folks should definitely go to means.tv and check them out. It's a workers' cooperative. They call it a post-capitalist streaming service, and they definitely deserve your support. Oh, yeah. And you, just to, to emphasize how cool this is, you can get it on Roku. You can get it on Apple TV. And it was very cool and very surreal for me to put it on my Roku and then stream things just like I would stream Netflix or whatever, like anti-capitalist programming on your TV, folks. It's incredible. It's a new project uh, that Nick and Naomi have been working very hard on. And uh, with our support and with all of our help, uh, hopefully it will become bigger and bigger and encompass more and more work and hopefully keep a lot of people uh, able to make the art and documentaries that uh, need to be made at this time. I just got to say, it's interesting that you call yourself a socialist and yet you have a Roku box. <laughs> you call yourself a socialist and yet you have a streaming service. <laughs> got me. It so happens. let's uh, let's do a little housekeeping, shall we? Before sure. we move into the uh, main part of the episode. Let's keep house. Um, what do we got? We got a Patreon. We got one, folks. Pay up, guys. We really <laughs> need your money. Um, we have a new goal coming up. We're not sure what it is. It's in the works right now. But uh, we know what the goal is going to be. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, we, we do. know what the goal. We've got a be. number on it. We got the quantitative uh, part, the qualitative. We're not part, really so. sure what the reward's going to be. Uh, we sent a bunch of prize packs out to people the last time, and everyone seemed to like those a lot. That's an option. Um, I was also thinking it might be cool to do some kind of digital reward where we maybe like do something cool on a stream that you guys want to see us do. So like perhaps Andy and I, and maybe even Jamie streaming uh spat smash brothers uh, on Twitch or something like oh, that. Geez. It could happen. Maybe so, Jake Flores jumping on. Yeah. Or something else. 
Um, <laughs> let, let us know if there's anything in particular that you guys would like to see because we are uh, an interactive podcast and also we don't have a lot of ideas right now. Yes. We also have a live show coming up in Seattle at a very cool uh, month-long of leftist programming event called uh, Red May. Yeah, it's going to be May 7th at Town Hall Seattle. It'll be $5 and free for youth uh, 22 and under. And our guests will be Magalay Miranda, Aaron Beninoff. Uh, okay, just those two. And uh, that's at yeah. the uh, the town hall of Seattle, Washington, folks. So go there, and at the end, the mayor is going to give them a key to the city. It's going to be a very, very nice event. We're going to be talking about automation and the future of work, uh, domestic work in the gig the economy, yep. IKEA. Uh, yeah, I bet you guys didn't stuff. know that uh, the mayor of Seattle was in the Yang Gang. <laughs> <laughs> just want to shout out that's a fellow Viewpoint editor there, Magdalene Miranda. Nice. Hell yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be cool. And we, we're excited. We're excited about the future. So let's, uh, let's get into this, guys. We're excited, excited about some futures. Yeah. At least the future of the podcast we are. Some of the other futures are a little <laughs> darker. For example, uh, we have a news topic today. Uh, we're going to be giving some takes on it. But, Lord, have there been takes on the coronavirus everywhere. It's either coronavirus pandemic um Hysteria, on the one hand, or it is denial and calling it a hoax uh, if you are the Trump administration. Uh, this, of course, popped up a few months ago in the Wuhan province of China. Uh, it has now spread to, I think, almost 100,000 people. Uh, first, it was quarantined in China. But then, of course, as these things do, as these respiratory infections do, it uh, jumped out of the quarantine and is now in... I'd say most countries, including in the United States, where about 100 people have it. And the first victim... And where uh, you're victim, not allowed to stay home from work if you're sick. Well, yeah, we're going to get into that. I mean, that's a lot of what we're talking about, because this isn't the epidemiology report. And none of us are biologists, except to the extent that I got a D in that in high school. Uh, we we want to talk about the politics of it. Uh, the first person in the United States, a man died in uh, Washington State. Uh, hopefully he wasn't trying to go to the live show because he's not going to make it. But we uh, we should be confronting this because, because again, um, there's a government reaction and there's a media reaction. That media reaction has been it started off quite racist. Do you guys remember the the, the dirty Chinese people takes? Yeah, wasn't there something about like the what what animal had been eaten that caused the initial <laughs> infection? There was a video that that uh, got spread virally on uh, I think first a Chinese. Um, uh, service and then uh, on Twitter and it went everywhere and it was purported to be a Chinese woman eating a live bat at one of these big wet markets, you know, where they sell all sorts of different, you know, meats and games, you know, right. in, in China. Well, that's especially ironic considering the most famous person to ever eat a bat was Aussie. an Englishman. <laughs> they should call it the Aussie virus or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was spread everywhere. It was purported to be like the way that this virus um, jumped from bats, from animals to human beings, right? Because it's a zoonotic disease. I also saw someone say it might have been a pangolin. You know that that no. creature? It's What's like it looks like a little armadillo. 
Yeah, it's like an armadillo. It's like a furry armadillo or something. I thought it was like an an English English way of uh, talking about penguins. I thought you were being racist there for a second. No, this is a separate animal, not an aquatic bird. Interesting. Well, uh, I don't think either of those... Well, bats might have been what actually jumped from species to species, but the woman eating the bat in the market was not the cause of, of the spread of this. But it did, of course, allow tons of commentators... Uh, especially in the West, to start talking about how savage and dirty uh, the Chinese people are and how, you know, they're a threat to all of humanity by eating such weird, strange things. And do you guys remember back when the Ebola virus in 2014 jumped out? There was a lot of uh, discussion around that, too. Big time. I mean, first, first of all, people are saying all sorts of crazy shit about China, but like, one thing that we know China is good at is enforcing a quarantine on its <laughs> citizens. Yeah. And like, you know, I've got my left critiques of authoritarian communism or whatever, but uh, it's good in some cases to be able to exert that kind of discipline. And if China can't do it, I have no hope that the rest of the world is going to be able to do it either. Yeah, you put your uh, finger on another uh, take that's been flying around, which is how it's a communist disease. It's because the Communist Party is so brutal and authoritarian over in China that for some reason it's allowed this to spread. And there have been people that saying like, okay, so the Chinese uh, Communist Party is responsible for this, the Chinese state. And also on the other hand, that they're not doing it correctly. They're not stopping the pandemic correctly. So I don't know what it is, See, but it's an opportunity an to play politics with it. Because there's a symbolism there. I think it was uh, Michael Smirkonish had that segment where he said, can either coronavirus or Bernie Sanders yes. be stopped? Mm-hmm. That was like yesterday, right? Or today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's shit. always that idea of left ideology as being a viral infection that is in danger of spreading. Yeah. They're really uh, saying the quiet parts out loud these days. <laughs> I love it. I think Chris Matthews should be on like all the time. <laughs> they took him off. I was watching the results come in, you know, and... No sign of, you know, our shouty uh, <laughs> red scare, uh, you know, uh, uh, centrist edge lord. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I like Chris uh, Matthews so much. I'd like to take him for a walk in Central Park. <laughs> That's really nice. That's a really nice sentiment. Um, but anyway. So, yeah, it's been it's been tied in the coronavirus then to, like, as you said, this long strain of anti-communism and with the Bernie Sanders thing, clearly a long strain of anti-Semitism, you know, Jews yeah. and spreading disease mm-hmm. and cosmopolitanism. So, so yeah, maybe I mean, it's possible. Obviously, we all think the coronavirus is bad. However, it does seem somewhat illustrative of certain contradictions within our current world system specifically the idea that capitalism is the most efficient way to produce and distribute the things that people need and keep everybody you know safe and happy or whatever like we're seeing uh slovo zizek actually uh wrote a piece recently in rt which might be one of the last places that will publish him. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Putin. About good for something. how the coronavirus will hasten the fall of capitalism. And he made some good points, actually. He said in this one part, and I quote, Bernie Sanders is mocked by skeptics. Uh, it's annoying. I'll stop. For his advocacy of universal health care in the U.S. Is the lesson of the coronavirus epidemic not that even more is needed? That we should start to put together some kind of global health care network? I think that's very true. Um, also, Sam made the point the other day on the majority report that uh, perhaps 
like the difficulty of getting vaccines in time to where they need to go and these global supply lines being so enmeshed and removed from a lot of the countries where the goods are actually going um, could highlight perhaps the idea that some things make more sense to produce in every country like vaccines and maybe if we were designing a system based on human needs uh we would put the vaccine factories in every country because that's where we need them rather than let the capitalists handle this and put them where they can make the most money off of them or we can just do what bill clinton did and bomb the pharmaceutical facilities like in sudan do you guys remember that yeah Jesus i guess Christ. that's one way to get rid of a, a virus is to just bomb you know the uh the the whole landmass where it's been located. Yeah, so carpet bombing. I'm sure there are neocons in the administration who would be calling for carpet bombing away the Well, did the you virus. see the, the like uh, uh, congressional hearings on this? Uh, the guy who was testifying, and I forget what his position is, something in the Department of Health or maybe even Homeland Security, the guy's name is Chad Wolf. <laughs> I am not making that up. He genuinely seems like he'd like just read a Wikipedia article. <laughs> God. On on the flu before oh doing this God. hearing, and then you see like Mike Pence and like a whole crew of cronies uh, in suits uh, doing their like press conference. I swear these guys they don't know how to pronounce the word biology. <laughs> they're just like they they're just you know uh, Keystone cops out here. This is this is what really got me because the news of this, of course, been going around for you know, several weeks now. It's becoming this sort of rolling crisis as more and more countries get it. But I wasn't personally frightened for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, the fatality rate, something like 2%, is legitimately like 20 times, 20% 20 more deadly than the flu, which is really serious. And it also is more infectious than the normal flu is. But so like, Obviously, I have like old people in my family and I have young people in my family. So, you know, I was scared for them, but I became scared for myself and pretty much everybody when I saw how the Trump administration was dealing with this, yeah. how politicized it is and how there's this this just bizarre playing around with the facts and the response to this that's putting not just Americans, but everybody in jeopardy right now. Yeah. Um, I also saw that video of, oh, geez, like it's it sounds really bad when you hear uh the fuck i forget all these people's names but they're all interchangeable ghouls like when you hear let's just say it was chad wolf <laughs> chad wolf <laughs> like the the dhs secretary getting questioned before congress and admitting that they don't have enough vaccines for everyone and then uh, I forget. Maybe it was even Trump himself who said that the vaccine was probably going to be expensive and they weren't willing to put any price controls on it. Then we had the very insufficient response from Nancy Pelosi, where she, you know, stuck to her uh, centrist talking points and said the vaccine should be affordable. affordable. Everyone yeah. should have affordable access <laughs> to the coronavirus Looking vaccine. To access for herd immune. Uh, yeah. I believe like I, this is coming from Surgeon General Martin Shkreli. <laughs> Seriously, like, does that make you guys feel better? No, nothing about this makes me feel better. I mean, there's precedence in the United States for a president using denialism uh, when there's a plague happening. I'm talking, of course, about Reagan in the 1980s. Of course. But that was about 
a disease that it was mostly gay people and then intravenous drug users dying of. It was a stigmatized disease for obvious social racist and, you know, whatever reasons. Uh, this is, you know, not even that. This is everybody is threatened by this. And the way that they're dealing with it is absolutely insane. Well, actually, there is a little bit of that rhetoric going on because part right, the of the Mexican border kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Part of the yeah. way that um, they're downplaying it is saying Trump, Trump, I think, said this yesterday. It's like, well, it's only only a certain kind of person is susceptible to it, which he means older people. Oh, okay. So the way they're downplaying it is like, yeah, it it will kill uh, about a million people worldwide. But most of those people will be, you know, 50 plus. Oh my God! Wow! I mean, another thing you mean the people who vote for him. (laughs) Another thing he said panels, basically. Yeah, he did say also that uh, the virus would basically go away once the weather got hotter. (laughs) Like that's like you know just one of those things that he just like thinks of and says it with no basis. But that's that's I mean, it it probably will be lessened in the warmer months, but then it'll just come back in the fall. (laughs) Yeah, the Spanish flu was a (laughs) pandemic for like three, four years and killed how many tens of millions of people. Um. And uh, on that note, I, re- I want to recommend that article um, by Chuang, the Chuang Journal. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's a Chinese left communist journal. And it's, it's very long. They go through like the history of pandemics, um, which they trace as basically beginning with, you know, the pre-capitalist era in Europe and explaining how, how these often do arise in China because they have this intense concentration, concentration of agriculture and animal husbandry centers and also how their healthcare system is not as communistic as we like to imagine. Right, right. And then also kind of tracing it through the idea of like the state of exception and, you know, normality breaking down in a general level and how that might be connected to ideas of communism and insurrection. It's a really fascinating article. It covers a lot of ground. I really recommend it. It's a really great article. And just a couple of points off of that real quick. Uh, The first is that, as Andy said, this is very much coronavirus and SARS and the other ones that have come out of China or elsewhere are very much capitalist diseases, capitalist plagues, in the sense that, of course, these, you know, diseases have always been around and they pop up throughout history. But it is that kind of intensive agriculture that we see, monocultural uh, production uh, under capitalism. It's the destruction of natural environments and the moving of the city into the countryside, which leads people to start poaching and uh, disrupts these ecosystems. And it's, of course, these global supply chains that are constantly moving around uh, goods and people so much that messes with the metabolism of nature. So it's very much it comes out of the political economy. It comes out of our global capitalism. Uh, and it's different than it used to be before. And the other thing is that A, this disruption uh, caused by the virus is, as we've seen with the stock market, starting to create real disruptions across the the global economy, which is something to look out for. Uh, And also, you know, I find it interesting that it's seen as a natural disaster. Right. This is the point. It's seen as a natural disaster, like diseases always happen. It's this sort of non-economic external force that's allegedly coming in and disrupting business as usual. Capitalism would be running great. Otherwise, you know, the states would be doing great. Otherwise, when in fact, what we're going to see as the climate starts to deteriorate, starts to break down. And, uh, you know, as global capitalism, capitalism continues this death drive is that more and more of the crises that come out of this mode of production are going to look like natural disasters because we're fucking up nature so much. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's going to look like, you know, flooding and famines and stuff are going to look like, oh, th- this shit just happens. Act of God. It's, act of God. But it's a direct result of this social system that we have and all the contradictions within it. 
So you know, I think that where there's a great analysis of this is in the the George Romero movie Dawn of the Dead, where the 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 pandemic is is zombies. And the reason that it spreads so precipitously is through consumerism, because wow, everyone yes. is in the mall. Right. You know, we're all in this space uh, oriented around purchase and monetary exchange. And that's also the means by which the virus gets distributed. Yeah, this is the real uh, de-enchantment of the world, right? Uh, of the natural yeah. environment where we're going in and we're... We're attacking it, and it's certainly attacking us back as this sort of zombie capitalism moves forward. I mean, I could see that critique going one of two ways, right? Because on the one hand, this is a disease of capitalism and globalized capitalism in particular. But the response to that, uh, I mean, Zizek talks about it in his article. He's like... I do see the irony in the fact that the correct response to that is for everybody to become more isolated than they are now and retreat to their own atomized private spaces. Because like the thing that is bad about global capitalism is not the fact that it's global or that people are in spaces together, right? It's the fact that we are alienated from each other and everything has been subsumed under the rules of the market. We are all quarantined in our own hearts. So maybe this is like uh, a literal representation of that. I don't know. That's no, good. That's good <laughs> stuff. Um, I think that that pretty much rounds it up for coronavirus, unless anybody else has some takes. Yeah, no. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on that. I think everybody will, because obviously it's a very, very serious, serious thing. Yeah. Indeed. So... In other very important news, um, the paper of record has once again turned its eye on a little thing they call the dirtbag left. Um, Cringe. Uh, yeah. This, uh, <laughs> you guys probably may have seen this article written uh, by uh, someone who is an heiress and literally dating. Her Barry name White. sounds like a flapper from an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. What is it? Nellie Bowles. Nellie oh, yeah. Bowles. Big time. Um, oh, they, yeah, they go. Th there's a lot of issues with this article. It's very cringy. It would also be maybe prudent to point out. As I think you have on Twitter, Shuja, yeah. that uh, the intellectual dark web story that Barry Weiss wrote before kind of legitimized people who do race science and said, oh, we're being unfairly excluded from the public conversation for race <laughs> science. And like, that's OK, apparently. But being mean to people in the name of getting everybody health care not so much. Look, phrenology is one thing, but shit posting, no way. It's literal violence. Not in the paper of record. I thought that article was kind of good. It made it seem like it was <laughs> uh, like the Sex Pistols or something. Well, this is the funny thing about it because uh, about every year or so, some publication, and this time it's the New York Times, the biggest one, um, tries to cancel that podcast, the Chapo Trap House, and it absolutely never works. No, yeah, it, it only makes the Streisand yeah. effect, right? Stry exactly, Streisand effect. It's like people like it because it pisses off people like Nellie Bowles. Right. And it's it's very similar to what we're going to talk about next, which is electoral politics. As you folks all know, on the Antifada, we love to talk about elections. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's similar to, to something that you see with uh, Bernie Sanders and his campaign, especially with this idea that the socialist label is going to end up destroying him once they get to the oppo yeah. and they, you know, publicize the fact that he's been a socialist since the 1970s. He's going to be destroyed and canceled. 
Sanders just leans into it, right? When they come at him with that sort of stuff, you're like, yes, you know, uh, what was the thing that happened uh, just last week with Cuba, for example, right? right? He didn't say like, oh, no, I'm not a socialist. He did do the kind of shitty thing and denounce everything about Cuba, except for their literacy and health program. Like, basically, what I'm saying is that if you give these people an inch, right, if you give the New York Times an inch with this stuff on the dirtbag left or whatever, they're going to end up being able to destroy you. But if you just stand your ground, you're just like, no, nope, this is me. That's what I do. That's, That's what, what you got to give him credit for is he what he did not do was apologize and say, I'm right. so yeah. sorry for endorsing, you know, the uh, reg- totalitarian regime or whatever. Exactly. What he said was, yeah, I said that they did some shit that was good and I was right. And, and you can't Obama just pretend that didn't happen. Thing. Right. Obama said the same thing. Yep. And the one thing that stuck out to me about this article was it really was very narrowly focused on Chapo and Friends' support of Bernie Sanders. Well, and they're trying to use it to smear the campaign, right? Yeah, but it did not really deal with their larger politics. Now, I can only speak for myself here, but I think, you know, a lot of the chapos probably feel the same way when I say we're not Bernie cultists, like we're socialists. Here at this podcast, we are literally (laughs) communists who think that if there's any socialist value in electoral politics, it's a, a temporary tactical alliance with social Democrats like Bernie Sanders. He is the fucking compromise candidate as far as Absolutely. we're concerned. That's it. This is one of the things is that the reason uh, I've been invested and I think probably you guys have been invested in what's happening with the Sanders campaign is that this is about the building of a left movement in this country, which has been so constrained ever since the McCarthy era. You know, just even on the symbolic level, but also on the material level of building a movement. And that's what what matters about it, you know? That's exactly right. And I think that uh, maybe all four of us might agree on that take moving forward. But you wrote a article in the outline recently about super delegates because when we're talking about building a left movement that will be partially instantiated through this campaign right we have to look at the things mainly the democratic party that is uh trying to stop this from happening right, right? and super delegates are of course in the news because this is this kind of fuckery at the convention uh, is what they are threatening to use and might possibly use uh, moving forward if he wins this thing i mean i can say just on a personal level that that I come from, you know, my entrance into politics was uh, anti-war activism against the Iraq war. And that was such a crushing defeat that the Democrats participated in, you know, allowing the war to happen. And it really turned me off of electoral politics wholesale. You know, even the, the glimmer of hope that I think a lot of people of our generation felt about Obama, obviously that was completely shattered by the actual Obama administration. You know, so when when Bernie Sanders initially announced his candidacy in 2016, I was like, you know what? This is a ploy to get me to join the Democratic Party. I'm not falling for it. The reason I started to actually get involved and to actually start to think it mattered was to see how much the establishment of the Democratic Party wanted to obstruct him. That's what started to make me think, actually, there is an antagonism within the party that I want to take a side on. Word. I feel it a similar way. Um, I recently rediscovered a photo, actually, or I discovered it for the first time of like baby Jamie protesting the Iraq oh. war with food, not bombs. And I've got my little studded belts on. Did you have a sign? 
I'm very scowly. No, I had a notebook, <laughs> okay. as, as I often do. And I'm wearing nerd shoes with my Hot Topic CBGB t-shirt because my mom probably correctly judged that my combat boots would hurt my feet. <laughs> when, when you're marching, you got to, you know, watch out for your, your durability and your endurance. Indeed. So let's go through a little bit of this history before we get into a wider discussion of what Bernie means for socialists. Yeah. What are uh, super delegates? What makes them so super? And uh, how did they come about coming out of the Democratic Party? Where did they come from? What do they want? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people don't know the, the particular mechanisms through which primary uh, elections are operated because the Democratic Party isn't that transparent about it. They don't really want you to know about the convoluted way that they do it. And uh, the whole system of primaries is actually a relatively new one. It comes around at the turn of the century. And I think 1912 was the first election in which there were primaries, the first uh, Democratic election. Uh, the, the way that they used to decide on their nominee was essentially people who were in charge of the party at a state level, at the national level in the committee would get together in what's, you know, colloquially referred to as a smoke-filled room. Right. You know, just a room full of white men, uh, you know, getting together and making a decision on who they wanted to be the nominee for president before the general election took place. A deeply, such a deeply undemocratic process that that still, of course, is the, you know, the, the term for when something's happening undemocratically, right, is a smoke-filled room. Yeah, yeah. We still have that in our lexicon. And and that was something that didn't even uh, change in uh, a national way. It was a very gradual thing that uh, uh, some states started to institute primaries uh, gradually over the course of the first half of the 20th century. And there was still primarily a lot of influence of those party bosses in making this decision. It comes to a, a kind of a head in uh, 1952 when that was the last time in our history that there's been a contested convention, mm. which is what people are talking about might happen this year. Uh, what happened there was that there were uh, Harry Truman was the incumbent. Uh, he was the presumptive nominee, but he had dropped out before the convention. And so I believe there were four people who were viable on the ballot. And they went actually not just to a second ballot, but to three ballots. That resulted in the nomination of Adlai Stevenson, who did lose. Yeah, uh, yeah folks, there was no so, president you know, Adlai. Good omen there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that, that's that's a moment where it starts to go into crisis. And then the real crisis, I think, happens in 1968, yes. where what happened at the Democratic Convention was that you had a candidate who had uh, uh, strong support in a, in a kind of comparable way right now. Not only did he have the support of uh, like kind of young people and activists who were engaged in left politics, uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was against the Vietnam War, uh, but he also had a majority of support in the primaries. It got complicated because of the Kennedy assassination and so on. But when the convention happened, Eugene McCarthy was the person with the plurality, meaning the most votes in his favor. The party bosses decided to nominate Hubert Humphrey instead, who had won literally zero primaries. <laughs> Nobody had voted for Even worse for than him. Elizabeth Warren, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had not won a single election. There was no Democratic reason to nominate Hubert Humphrey. That's what they decided to do because they decided they wanted to overthrow the threat from the left. Uh, and, of course, it was... Uh, scandalous. You know, there were already uh, in in Chicago, uh, in Grant Park, outside the convention center at the at the Democratic National Convention that year, there was already a coalition of groups uh, gathered in protest. Uh, 
uh, it became, you know, a, a full scale kind of conflict when the police cracked down on that assembly, uh, I think, to try to enforce the ability of the party bosses to make the decision on what the party was going to do. And this comes right on the heels of the 1964 convention in which, you know, under a segregated party, uh, there was an attempt to put up the Mississippi uh, Freedom Democratic Party, which was a non-segregated uh, group of Democratic activists from the South uh, who were trying to push right. the Democratic Party to the left on race issues, very, very important part of the civil rights movement. And even seating them within that 1964 convention was so contentious that it never happened. But they went and they did a public protest saying that you should sit us down. We're more democratic, you know, even than the Mississippi convention has had sent up. And so 68 then is this kind of continuation of turning the convention into a a place where not just party leaders, you know, can influence, but also party activists can come in and make their voices known. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so after 68, I, it was in 1970 that the McGovern Fraser Commission was assembled and uh, began the process of instituting primary uh, elections nationally. And uh, that was the system that was in place. You had McGovern in 72 and then uh, Carter was in 76. Uh, you know, the the Democratic Party establishment was unsatisfied with the way the party was moving at that point. Uh, and in 19, I believe it was in 1980 that the Hunt Commission came together. There's a really good uh, history of this by uh, Branko McEttrick. Um, yeah, the Jacobin writer, right? Yeah, yeah the, uh, he's a staff Jacobin writer who wrote this for In These Times on the history of the institution of the superdelegates, which took place in 1980. And if you look through the, the statements of the members of the Hunt Commission, which he quotes extensively, they were essentially saying, this is our means of taking back control of the nomination process. You know, it's been handed over to the voters, but we need to have a fail safe whereby we can make sure voters don't choose something we don't like. <laughs> right. Which, you know, like, it, it blatantly goes against the purpose of voting. But whatever. This is, you know, their decision. And what um, what's important yeah. about this? Uh, because that's almost the end of the story. Right. Because now or were there other changes that took place? Well, the that's when they instituted the superdelegates, right. which I mean, the, the next stage in the story the, the, for our purposes, I think, is actually in 2018. When uh, the as a result of the 2016 election and you had a lot of local contests where superdelegates overturned the decision of the voters in, in those states, Michigan, for example, Bernie Sanders won it in a really historic upset. And uh, at the convention, Michigan went to Hillary, you know, West Virginia, Michigan went. Uh, sorry, West Virginia went to Hillary at the convention by one vote because of the superdelegates, even though Sanders had won Indiana, uh, New Hampshire. You know, all these instances, and there's a good, like, kind of montage of this in that last Michael Moore documentary about the 2016 mm. election, where you see all of these states that Bernie won that went to Hillary because of superdelegates. And let's, I mean, let's be clear on what superdelegates are. They're uh, members of Congress. They're Democratic governors. They're what the, what the DNC documents call distinguished party leaders, <laughs> who could be, like, former presidents or what, just anyone they want to give this, hand over this power to. They can vote for whoever the fuck they want they are not bound by any decisions of the electorate, and they're already guaranteed a vote at the convention. This year, there's 771 of them. Uh, the minimum number for a majority of delegates is going to be uh, 1991. 1991. Yeah. 
771 can tip the scales easily, depending on those numbers. They could make the decision. This year, it's going to be that they uh, can't participate in the first ballot. They'll only be able to cast their votes on a second ballot if nobody reaches a majority on the first. And that's the compromise that was fought for in That's the compromise that was reached in 2018. And, you know, a lot of people want to hold Bernie accountable for writing those rules. But it's like, you know, if you comprom- if you tried to fight for something and you got halfway, then, I mean, how you blame them for, like, wanting to actually do what's right this time around? And the important thing about this history is that you see a lot of people complaining online and elsewhere, people who, you know, similar to a lot of us, haven't really engaged much in the electoral uh, process in their lives, either because they're young or because they just didn't really have anything to give a fuck about Mm -hmm. in the past. Uh, People complaining about how undemocratic it is. And the point is, is that the superdelegates system is uh is is undemocratic by nature right the democratic party is essentially a corporation it's a corporate entity and there's no reason to assume that they're going to be democratic about this the will of the people has never been the point right there's a really deceptive way of talking about this which is to say that people will make the argument that a plurality doesn't represent a majority so you can't say it's the will of the people or whatever but what what happens then what happens then is that the will of the people gets completely thrown out the window. And then, you know, a couple of thousand people at the convention who are already uh, entrenched in positions of power within the party make the decision instead of the voters. So I have to mention, by way of playing devil's advocate, that Bernie did make his case to superdelegates in 2016 and try to get them to vote for him over Hillary, even though she had more votes than he did. I don't really like it that he did that then, and I don't like it that they're doing it now, but I don't know if he necessarily has the moral high ground to complain about it now. I think that's our job. I think that there's a couple of differences, though, that that actually do matter. One is that, in that case, it was in the first ballot. Uh, there was one ballot in which the superdelegates were able to weight the results uh, against him. And they were against him from the outset. Those, the majority, vast majority of the superdelegates had endorsed Hillary before any primaries began. And we all know that voters are very influenced by the results of the primaries as they move along. Uh, you know, uh, somebody who starts to seem viable in the early states is going to do better in the later states. So there was already a bias against him. From the outset, Uh, one of the ways his campaign argued about it at the time was to say that in the states that he won, that he won the pledge delegates, uh, that the superdelegates should correspond to the electoral outcome in that state. I mean, that's that's a reasonable position. That's totally fair. But he also did make a case for them to actively flip it because he had a better case that he could beat Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I think rhetorically that wasn't the best approach, and it wasn't one that I would sign on to in those words. But I also think that he was within a primary process that was weighted against him from the start. Again, it was on that same ballot that the superdelegates, their votes were going to be there, and they were against him already. Uh, so for him to say, well, there's no particular reason those votes should be against me, what if they were for me, if that would change the result? I think it's a fair argument to make, even if uh, I agree with your your statement that, uh, you know, ultimately they shouldn't be the ones making the decision. At the New York Times article that came out last week uh, talking about the superdelegates, something that I was pretty surprised by is how clueless they all seem, because there's this sense that these are the party elite, the brain trust. They have at least the interest of the party in mind. 
but everyone they quoted were just like uh can we just choose uh, some other guy and like the, no one seems to know what <laughs> well, no sense of do. accountability right so there, yeah. is there a chance do you think that if it goes to the second ballot some of them are going to like realize well the youth movements with sanders maybe we should just give him a shot or are, will they are they really going to be dumb enough to shoot themselves in the foot well it's hard to know what's going to happen because of we don't know yet who is going to who else is going to be viable which of the other candidates we don't i mean for one thing warren i think from as far as i can tell is a wild card i actually i don't know what she's going to do i don't know if she's going to stick it out till the convention or if she's going to drop out she's going to snake her way into the convention you think she's going to go all the way no i I just wanted to say the word snake it's funny to me. that's fine with (laughs) i just i just don't know i can't tell with her uh but that's uh, fair but but the issue is, you know, you know, when when it was after Iowa that a lot of the news networks, when they posted the results, they would show it as like Sanders, like I think it was twenty six percent, and then against him they had like moderate <laughs> candidates, yeah. and it was like fifty two percent or something, right? <laughs> as though they were like you know all standing on top of each other's shoulders in a trench coat, <laughs> and they were one candidate, you know. Uh, so if if it does happen that there are three or more other candidates against him, it's entirely possible the delegates. So the pledge delegates, the ones that we vote for, they're associated with campaigns. So they're going to vote for that candidate. But they actually technically have the freedom to do whatever they want. And that's why if somebody drops out, those delegates, if they're already won, can vote for a different candidate. And they have to. So hypothetically, then, Warren could give her pledge delegates to Bernie if it came down to it at the end and she wanted to be a progressive. That is the moment of judgment for her. That's what I'm saying is that, like... Oh, she's when, when her reckoning comes, I don't know what she's going to do. So all yeah. the people who are yelling at her to drop out, like that's definitely going to be the best thing to do for Bernie, could be wrong. We don't know. But she's campaigning against Sanders now. Yeah, and she's like, like directly she against him now. And I don't I don't think she's ever going to accumulate a delegate count that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, have the potential to make that kind of a difference in the actual results. The, the risk is just that the moderates uh, are going to coalesce around one of them because they're so determined to stop Bernie. That seems very possible. What about the idea, though? Because I actually don't have any idea who's right about this. This is not my area of expertise. And also, like, it's just hard to predict what the fuck is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. With any of this stuff with Warren. Um, But like, okay, we're talking on Majority Report. Sam thinks it's much more likely that the party insiders will let Bernie get the nomination if he has a strong plurality and then undermine him in subtle ways so that he loses to ah, Trump. The Jeremy Corbyn crediting the left wing of the party forever. Because according to Sam, who like knows some of these people, the party insiders really don't believe that Bernie can win the general and they'd have to be morons to think they could cram through their person and have that person win. But on President the other Michelle hand, Obama. <laughs> yeah, right. This, these like ridiculous fucking fantasy football scenarios. <laughs> but on the other hand, we saw in 2016 that these people are very good at assigning blame anywhere but themselves when their candidate loses. If well, they I can't blame you, themselves after Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump, what can they blame themselves for? I, I believe we are going to see a lot of these, uh, the loudest vote blue no matter who people. Mm-hmm saying they are not going to vote for Bernie if he gets the nomination. Third party run by Bloomberg. Pull a Ross Perot, maybe. You know, I mean, I, I, I hear from people, I haven't looked into the actual technical rules of this, but apparently there is some kind of situation that if you lose a party nominating contest, you can't run it as an independent mm. in certain states. Or maybe nationally. I'm actually not sure. Don't quote me on this. But... The Democratic Party has already changed its fucking rules right. to allow Bloomberg to get in the race. 
Like, I mean, you know, you can't, you, you can't put that past these people. I mean, no. it's entirely possible that they're going to they're gonna introduce an election spoiler. And a lot of these people, they're going to do just fine with another Trump administration. Uh, that is you the know? point. That is the question is. Neera Tandon is not yeah. going to, you know, suffer any hardship. Yeah. But then it shows these people really don't know what the fuck they're doing. Because all Bloomberg's done so far really is act as a spoiler for the more moderate candidates. He's not taking votes away from Bernie. Well, they, that is certainly true. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. But the question that's going to be facing them in several months is, are they willing to, on the second ballot, try to take it away from Bernie, who looks like he'll have a plurality at that point in time, and in essence, do what happened in 1968, which is completely destroy their chance of winning the election by alienating millions, tens of millions of people, yeah. and potentially destroying their own political party. I mean, Bloomberg is explicitly candidate, uh, uh, campaigning for the second ballot. He's reaching out the superdelegates and, so is Warren, Warren. and Warren is is giving hints of that as well um I uh, I think that that argument that like though you're gonna destroy the chances of winning in the general is a strong argument that maybe the superdelegates and the pe- the party elite don't really understand like maybe they think like oh they'll just vote for us no matter what like mm. they're not gonna really abstain so I'm wondering if like a big thing that the Bernie left needs to be uh, worrying about right now is how to communicate that this abstention threat is not just a troll. It's not just like a podcast joke <laughs> that, cause I, <laughs> I don't think it funny. is. I, I think like really a lot of the people voting for Bernie, like 20 to 30% of the party will just not vote. I think that's true. Or yeah. will certainly yeah. not. And I, I think that, so that threat of abstentionism needs to be made explicit in a non-trolly way. Yeah, and well, it's let's not call just it the socialist is. left that we're talking about here. This is like the base of the democratic party that if the information gets to them, will not vote for someone who is a Republican. And this is the side of the party that was always taken for granted by them, the left wing, the Kucinich well, wing of the, the party. Wing, no, sure. no, I'm saying that the situation is split, right? Because if Bernie wins the nomination, right, it'll be the moderates who are expected to go over and hold their nose and vote for the quote-unquote left candidate, right, the progressive candidate. It's always been the case in the past that if you were a Democrat and you were you know, really far into the liberal left, you just had to suck it up and get behind Hillary Clinton, right? Now yeah. it's reversed. And they're having a huge conniption and a big fit because the other side of the party now is is in the driver's seat. I mean, let's call this what it is. It's voter disenfranchisement. If, uh, you know, somebody has the most votes, they don't get the nomination and then the delegates make a decision, you know, without any reference to those outcomes. That's voter disenfranchisement. And I think a lot of people are going to feel like, oh, my vote actually doesn't matter. Why would they go out and vote in the general if if that's the the impression you're conveying to them? I mean, look. I think a lot of people would feel obligated to vote for a fucking Biden, a fucking Klobuchar, even a fucking rat bastard in swing states if the alternative is Trump. The lesser evil argument, harm reduction, whatever you want to call it. If it's Trump versus Bloomberg, I just don't see that happening at all because there is not a moral case to be made that he is a lesser evil i mean i think the argument is that biden does worse because of the abstention from the liberal left and the socialist left and that bloomberg just gets completely obliterated like 49 states just gets destroyed i'm saying the abstention would not just be the socialist left oh sure it's degrees of it's degrees of loss you're talking if you want to talk about electability or whatever the fuck you know that people are always bringing up to put one new york billionaire up against another and like it's it's 
it, and you one know, is 42% of people didn't vote the last time. You think they're going to get excited and like go to the, you know, the polling station over that? Come on. So this, I, I want to just throw out a take. I want to get us back into Antifada territory because, as I said before, electoralism isn't our <laughs> main thing. One of the takeaways from, as we saw, the anti-democratic aspects of this misnamed Democratic Party, also the shenanigans that you're starting to see, and the kind of split and the breakup that's happening you know, within the quote-unquote progressive movement, whether that's like Mayor Pete Buttigieg supporters, who I guess in some world are like on the left, and then Sanders and I guess Warren supporters on the other. A huge conflict brewing. I think that uh, it makes sense to start talking about the desirability one way or the other of absolutely obliterating, tearing apart, pulling up from the roots and salting the earth around the Democratic Party. I think that there's a lot of arguments that people make about, oh, we can take this party over, that it's recoverable if we just put you know, a strong progressive or a socialist in power, that you know, we can change the party and make it more like a, I don't know what, like a labor party or a workers party or something like that. My argument is that no. That is not possible. That one way or the other, the Democratic Party is going to and has to fall apart. There is this contradiction at its root, right? It is not a party, a membership party like you see in Europe, right? It is actually essentially just a bank account. Right, that sits somewhere. It's uh, it's the Democratic National Committee, and it's this kind of federalized structure. It's basically just a rented office somewhere in Washington D.C. It doesn't have any real social backing or social power. Uh, you know, people aren't paying dues and considered to have to do obligations uh, in return for it. Uh, it's basically PR hacks. All right, this is the Democratic Party. Are P, uh, public relation hacks who graduated from Raytheon's like LGBT outreach program. It's Harvard MBAs who are taking a break from looting underdeveloped countries. And it's scions of like frozen chicken fortunes who are sitting up there and saying that we are the possibility for the left in this country. And if you look at it historically, I don't see any way that you can use this as a vehicle, this retrograde institution for social change. I just don't see it happening. And whether they want to destroy their party by trying to take the nomination away from Bernie when he gets a plurality or if Bernie becomes president and you see them splitting because I think they would split first and create some sort of weird Lib Dem type party in the United States. I think it's absolutely necessary to start thinking about what could replace that because I don't think you can make the Democratic Party Democratic. I certainly don't think you can make it a labor party. I don't know. I kind of have a left critique of that. I'm not sure that it matters. I think it would be a little better to have a workers party. But as we've discussed in previous episodes, as long as you have to manage a capitalist economy, workers parties can find themselves in all sorts of untenable positions, oh, for sure. becoming the administrators of austerity. Like, look at what happened to fucking Syriza. So, like, given that fact and given the fact that our system is basically built around having two parties, I think it makes more sense in the short term when we're dealing with electoral politics to try for some kind of realignment. I don't know. What do you think, Shuja? Well, can I just jump in and say it's really good that you mentioned Syriza and Greece because that is an interesting situation. You know, what happened there with the rise of that party and them getting into power? Because Greece is like 
the the ideal situation that we would think of on the left. There's a still a strong communist party, you know, that has anywhere between five and 15 percent of the electorate at any given time. There's a massive anarchist movement in the streets ready to do kind of street action alongside uh, a governing party. There was this massive austerity drive. So people being crushed down and there's a pretty, you know, relatively decent amount of development there in Greece. So you can imagine like some sort of strong, you know, social safety net potentially being created out of it. But even with all of that, similar to what you said, Jamie, with all of that, Syriza could not help but become the austerity party. So I don't know if that that reality changes, whether you have a workers party in the United States or it's just the Democratic Party. I think that we've seen with electoralism, there's something almost overdetermined about that at this moment. I mean, I, I think that the American context is pretty specific, which is that we're still living under the long shadow of McCarthyism. You know, we're still living in a nation that has less of a welfare state and more opposition to organized labor than, uh, you know, all of the other most populous Western nations. Uh, and I think that the for, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll make the case for myself that I think, the uh, like I was alluding to earlier, the reason that I feel I'm on the side of the Sanders campaign is that I'm on the side of, uh, you know, socialist organizations that are affiliated with with the campa- campaign, uh, with organized labor that has endorsed the campaign. And I think that building power for those movements uh, is is of paramount importance. And unfortunately, because organized labor is so diminished in this country, so much of our political uh, kind of climate is oriented around electoral politics. And so I think that makes that a legitimate arena in which to, to fight. And it's one that it's really important not to, you know, put all your eggs in that basket. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to, we're getting pressured into doing. Like Jamie, you were saying earlier about the way the um, New York Times piece about the dirtbag left made it all about Bernie. Like that's the box that they're trying to put these movements into. And I think it's really important to make sure that we're about the movements and not just about the presidency. Uh, but that also means that, if the presidency is a part of that advancement, that uh, we can skeptically and cautiously participate. That's a really good way to transition us into, yeah, I, I think, think, the broader the conversation. Now. Yeah, we oh. are. I just, no, I that's just good. Wanted... You did great. You no, did great. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to be a wrecker like always and push back a little bit on the idea that the Democratic Party is totally polarized and fractured and all it needs is one more push to totally obliterate it, Mm. right? Because the idea that Democrats need to unite the party, right? They keep pitching like Warren or whoever as a unity candidate. Um, It seems a little disconnected from the non-MSNBC-brained electorate and how they think. Like the average voter doesn't perceive a split in the party necessarily. The average Democratic voter likes Bernie Sanders. He's like, oh, he stands for like the same stuff as FDR. He's liberal like me. And also people don't always vote based on ideology necessarily. And this is evidenced by the fact that supporters of every single candidate have Bernie as their most common second choice. Like Biden voters, even. I I think what you said just helped me clarify what I was trying to say about the Democratic Party before. I'm not talking about actual, quote unquote, Democrats, right? The people on the ground. You're right. I think you're 100 percent correct about those people. What I was talking about is this essentially this this corporate structure uh, that dominates the quote unquote left side of the spectrum that basically like rips off well-meaning activists and is wholly 
to create consulting jobs and media sales for like an elite class of people. Yeah, it's a and if you want, program. it's a workfare program for the ruling class for, for their children, for fail the sons. And and look at the Shadow app. Remember that shit in, in mm-hmm. Iowa? You know this sort of self dealing grift that happened. That is the Democratic Party. That is what it is. It is basically a long running fucking grift. And so it's those people, right? When I'm talking about you know they're not going to accept it and they're going to break away from the party, it's that ruling class segment that will end up destroying the party if anything because they're the ones always at the end of the day who are running the conventions and who are in the driving driver's seat right they will split away they'll break away from these voters that you're talking about because their game is not the same as everybody else's game their game is to keep the grift going not to get like social democracy or whatever yeah well i think the good thing about some of these people being purely driven by their need to get jobs and you know keep their own grift going is it might not be so ideological for them so if they think that they can get jobs in a real line democratic party they'll fucking go along with it because they have they no core values bend the well, knee you are starting say. to see it i mean there's people you know i i've become an inveterate msnbc viewer ever since the primary oh, I'm started sorry i'm just you know i gotta keep track <laughs> you're in the and trenches yeah, yeah so uh you're seeing increasingly all these figures who were uh, fully against any kind of alteration, any shift to the left in the Democratic Party, starting to say, look, you got to take Bernie seriously. Like they're they're starting to see the tide turning and they want to be able to spin it to their advantage. They want to get in on it. Yeah. Some of that sweet Bernie money. Well, the good news for these people, as I have said in the past, is that Bernie does have a program for a federal jobs guarantee. <laughs> so they will not be out of work. It's called... Uh, spreading and enlarging the Democratic Party so everybody could be in the party and everybody will get a consulting job. I mean, the bad news for them is they might not get to work, you know, making apps that don't work or whatever. They might have to actually do some productive labor. But you got like to see him breaking rocks. Him. You got to contrast him with the rest of the field in that he's he's the one who's willing to say there should be no billionaires, whereas you have Buttigieg out here saying we've got to be inclusive to billionaires, no racism against billionaires because you know they're Democrats like us, they got to be part of our coalition. Let's so let's br- use this opportunity to break down this opportunity that you're talking about, Shuja, which I think is is a real one that's happening right now out of the movement itself, not necessarily the electoral politics. I mean, we could talk about what a Bernie presidency would look like, what's capable and what isn't right but i think the thing that the listeners of this show and us are more excited about which is all these millions of people that are mobilized behind something called socialism democratic socialism socialism with i don't know scare quotes around it because i think we need to kind of examine and think about what sort of socialism is being proposed and what sort of socialism would come out of a movement like this well you know i want to make this point about this is this is a little shifting back towards electoral politics more it's than you fine. indicated, but but a, a comparison that people keep bringing up is 1972 with McGovern. Uh, the thing that people often don't mention is the makeup of the electorate has changed dramatically. The McGovern election was the first one where 18-year-olds could vote. Mm. You know, uh, the, the 1972 election. It was only the second election after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which returned, you know, uh, voting rights to many people of color in the South. Uh, who were previously held back by Jim Crow laws. So uh, the composition of the electorate is so different right now, and it includes, uh, let's just say, uh, young people of color to an extent that have never been participants in American politics up till now. And those are absolutely the people who believe in social welfare programs, who even are open to the idea of socialism. Uh, to an extent that is confusing to the establishment. It's confusing to those elderly voters. 
And of course, it's the material conditions as well, right? We're yeah. not in 1972. You've got a generation of people who've grown up in crisis. Yeah. Uh, you have the great promises of uh, the post-war period, even of the Clinton neoliberal era, those promises being dashed on the shoals of a uh, increasingly uh, dysfunctional and um, desolated uh, American jobs market. And uh, it's really no surprise then that you see this sort of reaction, especially from young people. So I have a slightly a slight rephrase of Sean's initial question in this section I suppose mm. and this is really the most important question to me with all of this stuff is how does this movement behind Bernie Sanders potentially move the ball towards socialism by which I mean a full transition away from capitalism not Scandinavian style social democracy because that's the only justifiable reason why socialists should be bothering with it right otherwise yeah. it's just liberalism and I've been concerned by the lack of thought that some say DSA for Bernie types seem to have put into this very foundational question before anybody answers that I do want to say that it's important to realize that there is a strong and real emotional pull for people, especially on the healthcare issue, that we can't discount, right? Medicare for all is coming out of a situation in this country where you see it online all the time. People accounting for what happened to them in the in the in the weeks previous, like their children being killed in a car crash. People doing GoFundMe's for their people doing <laughs> GoFundMe care. Having their families killed in a car crash and getting a bill for three hundred thousand dollars the next day. You know, we li the system that we have right now is so inhumane and so brutalizing, right? That that even though it might be liberal, right, in order to want these things, they're good in and of themselves. I just want to sure. make that clear, right? Like we do need we some need good, reforms. mild social democratic reforms. And that's a lot of what's animating the people who aren't socialists, of course, right? Because it's not just us and the listeners who are totally down with overthrowing capitalism, right? This is part of why these millions of people are matching or, you know, glomming on to this, this larger campaign for a, a presidential. Yeah. And I would never say that those concerns don't matter. Like we all have them and they're very very real i'm just right, asking, but it wouldn't make it any different from like any other i'm presidential. asking how this also in addition to the need for these reforms which by the way historically have not merely come as the result of electoral wins they've come as the result of massive grassroots movements full of anarchists and communists who scared the shit out of the ruling class and got these reforms as concessions in a larger right. fight not as the Absolutely. horizon level goal yeah, no, I mean, this this is anecdotal, but what comes to mind for me is that when I've spent time in uh, other countries that have similar kinds of uh, representative democracies, labor is a lot stronger. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like it's very customary. You know, like when I went to, to France, I remember there was a transit strike and, you know, it was just everyone was just saying, oh, you know, it's a strike. We, we've got to work around that. Uh, you know, you can't you can't take the train today. It's it's France expected. had a it's, transit strike, so it was a day that ended in Y. <laughs> They're always on strike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, and that's that's just so uh, atypical here. You know, when the teacher strikes happened in West Virginia, it was like an it was it was uh, unprecedented national news because we're so unused to that. And that's why I think that if there is something within the sphere of electoral politics, because Americans are so disenfranchised politically that we think our only participation in politics, however that's conceived, is the vote we cast every four years. And I mean every four years, not even every two years, right. because people don't participate in local politics that much because they don't see the results. 
or, or you know, they're they're not tied into that. So if if we can put organized labor on the ballot, at least even even in the most superficial way, I think it's just not hard to take a side. And that's what I'm saying is that, like, I'm not talking about, like, uh, uh, having a glorified vision of this that that thinks it's it's, uh, you know, actual revolution. You know, Bernie uses the phrase political revolution all the time, uh, which I think is a qualified Mm. way of talking about it. But nonetheless, it puts revolution uh, into the discourse. You know, yeah, uh, and I mean, it's not, not a political revolution is a revolution of sorts. Yeah. It's just not the kind of social revolution where yeah. we transition we to communism that someday. the three of us <laughs> are always talking about. <laughs> but it is like a legitimate project for sure. Yeah, it would be revolutionary in the sense that it would change uh, what was possible uh, through the state. And also, I think importantly, and this kind of comes off what you're saying, Shuja, what all of us are really saying, which is uh there are certain policies that a Sanders presidency could implement, not even with con- control of Congress, even if he didn't. I'm saying through like executive actions or, say, the makeup of the National Labor Relations Board, for example, that could do the most important thing, which is to give workers in this country, uh, all of us, not just union workers like myself, but all workers in this country, pull the boot off of our neck a little bit, right? To kind of try to build a tradition like you see in France, like you see even in Germany and and elsewhere, where uh, labor protections, workers' rights, allow the true uh, motive power within class society, which is the working class itself, to self-organize and start to create, push for, but also to create those sort of organizations and uh, powers that... uh, ultimately will be what has to be created if we're going to have socialism. And not just in this country, right? Like all over the world. Bernie is the only candidate who has said, who has articulated an anti-imperialist position Mm. when it comes to workers' uprisings in specifically Latin America. And that means a lot to me. That's huge. Yeah, I think that that alone, the fact that he is more genuinely anti-imperial i don't know if he's anti-imperialist but more anti-interventionist at least in like a a more sincere way i don't know what his foreign policy would be but like i was just in guatemala and talking to you know uh i think pretty hard like stalinist communists there and they're like yeah of course we're all supporting bernie like what trump is doing is actively really bad for our country and for our movement so and that's that, the that international working class, right? But I think um, your the vision that you lay out about taking the boot off our neck a little bit, uh, I think is uh, it's a, it's that's one vision of putting ourselves in a better position for strategic yeah. uh, having a, a strategy towards socialism or communism. But then I think there's a more dangerous vision, which is that the Sanders uh, platform of like Denmark social democracy becomes what socialism means. So, like, there's this, like, radicalizing yeah. uh, spread of, of, like, socialist self-identification. And that's a good thing because there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, I think, but like, 10% gets... of registered Democrats now identify as democratic socialists. But if that gets bottled up into, like, the vanguard of that movement just becomes the radical liberal grassroots of the Democratic right. Party, then I think it might be even a, something of a setback. And that's going to be tested out by the fact that I, the movement around Sanders right now is a sort of socialist united front, right. um, which is, you know, different than the making like some sort of popular front with the Pelosi wing of the party. But that could happen, too. And so I think it's important to, like, you know, maybe not play up the differences right now within that united front of people who are like 
communist or like revolutionary socialist or whatever, like the, those don't have to come to a head right now. But keep keep tabs on what those political differences are and think about where you stand on those. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, we're talking about the definition now. I, I put socialism in scare quotes earlier. Did you guys see that really shitty tweet from that Arnon guy with the weird pompadour? You know who I'm talking about? He's like a commentator <laughs> oh, on, I don't know. Arnon Giordardo? Yes, yes. Thank you. That guy. Uh, he had like the most cringe post you've ever seen, but I think it's very typical of this conversation yeah. where he's talking about uh, socialism is roads, socialism is the post office, socialism is social security, socialism is the military, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, and you right. hear socialism this. Socialism is when the government does things. Exactly. Right. We all know this, this very, very, I think, common, but uh, very, very degraded and shitty definition of what socialism is. I think that even in, in that situation, like Andy's saying, we're in this kind of united front situation. It's positive for now, as long as it doesn't go far down that road, because whether we like it or not, socialism has always been a contested terrain. It's always been a terrain of struggle for 200 years. It's meant different things to Edward Bernstein than it's meant to sure. Vladimir Lenin. And w just to have people engaged with this concept, the concept of something that's not capitalism, that's moving forward from capitalism, gives us... Uh, you know, not something that we can just, uh, I don't know, without without thinking about it, without dwelling on it, just jump jump into. But it gives us the ability to start pushing our vision, right? A pro-revolutionary socialist vision, a working class vision within a larger movement to and with these millions of people who are now mobilized around this idea. Right. So if it's contested, let's contest it. Let's get in there and do it. Yeah, I think there's intertwined aspects of that. And, and the way I would distinguish them is that I think it's really worthwhile to talk about the kind of American heritage of socialism, to make it established as something that the best aspects of our society and the best hopes for our society come from a tradition of people's organizing and activism, uh, organized labor, you know, uh, even, even popular front uh, uh, kind of reforms. Uh, so I think to an extent to talk about aspects of the welfare state as being socialism is not inherently uh, mistaken. I think when it's talking about kind of reinforcing uh, uh, state authority, that it becomes dangerous. When you say the cops are socialism right. or something like that, like, and the risk, the problem with that is that I, I mean, you know, if if you're one of those opportunists who is jumping on the Bernie train because you think that's the direction the party is going, mm. uh, obviously you're not coming from any kind of principled framework there. If you're coming from a principled framework and you're approaching it with skepticism and you're willing to say that the welfare state is in some senses uh, uh, embodies elements of socialism, I think rhetorically that might be a, a, a good approach. Yeah. But you got to be careful about yeah. like what, you know, how you are treating the state in itself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think another important aspect of Bernie in relation to socialism, I keep changing my position on this because I'm like so agnostic <laughs> and I don't really trust people who claim to be sure on either side. Yeah. Like all these like armchair left comms who are like very sure this has no relationship right. to socialism. I'm like, oh, fuck you guys. <laughs> on the other hand, there's like all these like, I don't want to name names, but I've dealt with people in DSA who are like, yes, this is the path to socialism and anyone who has any left critiques is a wrecker and a fucking class enemy don't name names like we've dealt we've all dealt with these kinds of people but i think one thing that gives me hope is 
the essential message of class conflict. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. Bernie understands that it is a zero class sum war. Game. He says class he says war. Class war. He, he talks about a ruling all class. All the time. Talks he talks about the, about the ruling class. He talks about how. Like I thought he was about to drop the labor theory of value in the debate <laughs> when he. Yeah. Talks about yeah. No, I know exactly like, the moment you're your workers about. made that money. Yeah. You didn't make all that money by working. And they feel like cogs in the machine because they're alienated from their labor, from the labor process. Was essentially what he was saying too. It's incredible. You would never think to hear that on a debate stage yeah. you know, six, eight years ago. The one, the version of it I don't like is uh, when somebody talks about, and the thing is like Bernie's done this also like Martin Luther King did this. It's like, it comes up a lot, but when people talk about socialism for the rich, yeah, you know, uh, I don't individualism for everyone. I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. Well, this is, (laughs) it doesn't help people understand. No, I mean, this is the, I think the difference between uh, rhetoric and reality, but it's also the difference, but there's a real tension that I think has always existed, uh, at least within the, you know, the Marxist socialist left that engages in sort of um, I mean, the reason- electoral fights is that you, you have to start, you have to say that some things are somewhat socialist because you have to win gains that people associate with socialism. Right, right, right? right. So you can't just, you can take a complete ultra insurrectionary position and say like gains are bad or like we don't fight for gains. But it seems to me historically that the way that you bring people along is by helping to win them shit. But you've got to associate socialism with egalitarianism and you can't, I mean, I think when you talk about the idea of redistribution towards the rich as being a version of socialism, I, I think it just obfuscates the, uh, the definition for, for people who don't get what it is. It's because we're coming out of this Cold War sensibility that people have that understanding. So we made the analogy earlier, or I made the analogy about uh, Syriza. Right about sort of the limits of what a popularly popularly elected progressive government um, could do I in power. I made that analogy. Oh, initially. thank you very much. Oh, I jumped off of your analogy. Thank you for starting it and allowing me to complete it. But <laughs> uh, I think another interesting analogy historically, and I think very important for the present, is Hugo Chavez. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, right? If there's a Sandersism, uh, it I think is somewhat related to Chavismo. And I say that not because they have the same policies and certainly not because Venezuela is the same as the United States uh, electorally uh, or otherwise. I say it because when you saw Chavez rise to power, he did so not as a socialist, but as a populist. Right. He had this sort of anti-elite rhetoric. He uh, talked about implementing good social programs for the people. But certainly after the coup and then in the years after that, there there became this shift in his rhetoric and also this shift in this policy towards creating more bottom up type uh, institutions, creating the uh, communos, the the communes uh, as they were creating themselves, creating the collectives as they were creating themselves. So. Chavismo starts with a, you know, strong, charismatic leader, right, who represents the movement. And then there's a counter revolution. There's a pushback against him. And then he activates the base, right, which starts to gain its own momentum and its own self-activity. And then there starts to be this dialogue between this charismatic leader and that base, which now has, you know, real power in the streets and, and on the shop floor. The reason I bring up Bernie is because I think that. You, you have a similar dynamic where you have this one man, right? Bernie Sanders. That's why we can talk about Sanders-ism, right? This mm-hmm. sort of Norman Thomas, Eugene Debs tra- type tradition that he's you know bouncing off of. Um, I hate to say it, but I don't see much uh, of, a, of a movement like we're looking for elsewhere in this country right now. You don't have a super strong labor movement. You don't have a super strong, strong street movement. So what people are hoping for and banking on is that by electing this guy, 
He can create these policies that bring the grassroots up so we can do our own shit. But there's a huge problem with that, because as you saw in Venezuela, when Chavez was gone, so went the movement. And I don't feel like we're really prepared right now to even think about what it looks like if we win and these positive steps towards building a socialist movement, you know, actually start. What do we do that's different? I mean, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that those types of movements have uh, been so fragile and volatile in Latin America is because of the opposition from the United States. I was hoping you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And the difference with Syriza, too, because Syriza, of course, is like in the core, but it's on the periphery of the core. It's not Germany, right? So Syriza and Germany might be able to do differently. I mean, one principle here is just holding our ground, you know, not ceding the ground that we've won. Uh, and whatever puts us in a position to do that, I think, uh, you know, we, we want to hold that ground. And, and, and when we talk about a political revolution, you know, as distinct from the broader sense of revolution, uh, as being within the electoral sphere, uh, this is, this is what, uh, brings up the, to mind the example of, of Bolivia where, you know, uh, Morales was, uh, had achieved that political revolution and was winning in the electoral sphere and faced this opposition, uh, you know, so it's it's just perennially it's a question about which side are you on, and it's it's easy to decide. I think if you have uh, socialist principles, if you're on the left, uh, if you uh, align yourself with movements that you want to limit the power of those who would crush those movements, and uh, the way that is available to us to do that is to fight the democratic establishment right now. And to impose taxes on billionaires, right? Like Bernie is the only candidate who thinks that billionaires shouldn't fucking exist. Even Elizabeth Warren, she's like, oh, it's fine. You know, we just want everyone to Yeah, she says some shit about innovation and entrepreneurship (laughs) and like, you know, if you earned that, you know, place, then good for you. Like the the bad thing about having billionaires in society is not simply that they're hoarding all the resources. That is one problem, and we need to redistribute some of their money and use it to fund the welfare state because we can't just fund it with MMT. I'm sorry, MMT (laughs) people, but we can't. Um, But the other problem is that having just the very existence of people with that much money translates into political power in society and no private corporation or private individual should have that kind of power in a democracy. Well, wow, you're I mean, you're now you're right, um, you know, but you also have to get into the fact that even if Bernie Sanders is elected, he will be the chief operating officer of uh, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. You know, so let's not let's not think that even just taxing billionaires more is getting us like, you know, even close to abolishing class power. No, certainly. But if we could eliminate billionaires, say, yeah, it'd be great if, with confiscatory tax policies <laughs> that Bernie may or may not be able to implement, it would materially decrease the amount of power that they have in society and hopefully shift that power back in the direction of labor. That's why the rhetoric of class war, I think, is, is so important. That's yeah. why it's, it's valuable that he brings it up. Because, you know, you have, again, people like Buttigieg talking about how, like, the problem with our politics is division. And, like, we've got to, you know, be able to come together as a country or whatever the fuck. And it's <laughs> like, you know... Yeah, there is a division. We didn't start it. The you know the the war the class war is coming from the ruling class. We're defending ourselves. But this is I I think um you know as exciting as it is that we have a candidate talking about class war, the way what he said was 
if there's going to be a class war, it's about time the working class should win it. Mm. So that implies that he's got a vision of social peace. It implies right. that there's not a class war already. Right? And that's and the, well, I, I'm I'm sure he thinks that there's been a class war for a long time. But and I, I and I think it's fine that he he wants there to be social peace. Like he's a social democrat. This is what social democrats have really always believed in. I have different politics than him. So and I think if if you are if you believe in a revolution against capitalism in the state. It's okay to say Bernie Sanders is a goal that at some point it's going to become uh, an impediment. Right. And well, it's a provisional goal. Well, I, yeah, right. I think it's, it's not the ultimate goal. I think it's up to us as the socialist left to recognize when he stops being a help to these yeah. movements and starts being a hindrance. That's And big. I feel like that's not going to happen for a while. We're not in kill Rosa Luxemburg time yet. <laughs> We're decades away and from that. There's always this fear of, you know, sheepdogging people into the Democratic Party, you know, this Pied Piper that brings these social movements as Philip Foner, the famous Marxist labor historian said, you know, uh, the ballot box is the coffin of social movements. There's this fear that Bernie is going to destroy something. Did I say something wrong? I think, I think he said it's about, I mean, there, a few different people have said that okay. in different ways. Well, I think Kim Moody said it's Marxists have said that sometimes it's bad to have have ballot boxes if you have a social movement but the point is that uh, we don't have that right now yeah you know we don't we don't have any substitute at this moment right if it were to get to the point you know as you guys were saying where it becomes an impediment on the self-activity of the class to abolish itself as the class we need to be ready for that well i mean i this i think that if there were to be a bernie sanders presidency from the day of his inauguration our role would be to shift into Antagonism. critique yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, accountability. Uh, but how would we be better served by the inauguration of, you know, uh, Biden or Warren or Buttigieg? Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think accelerationist arguments have really panned out all that well. You know, we didn't see Trump and then see like a, an immediate social explosion of proletarian energy out there in the street. Maybe it's still true and we haven't seen it yet, but I don't it's not really panning out that way. Well, here's here's a question that I want to cram into here. So Bernie seems to be pivoting to the general right now yeah. by backsliding a little bit on some policy questions, most notably the total moratorium on deportations that was previously part of his immigration platform. Uh, Faiz Shakir walked it back. The Bernie Sanders campaign has not responded to further questions about it. Um how should the left and, in this case, immigrant rights groups respond to that? Is there a way to push him on these policy issues without hurting his chances of winning? Or should we just shut up until after he wins the general and hope that he's not serious? You want to jump on this one, man? Well, I, I don't know <laughs> if I have the strategic answer to that. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, there's no... There's no legitimate call to say that people shouldn't be critical. I mean, you know, if if immigrants rights groups are uh, going to voice criticism, then basically it's 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 their right to do that. It's our responsibility to uh, to bolster them in doing that. And it's ultimately the responsibility of the campaign to be accountable to that. I think one of the advantages of uh, the Sanders campaign uh, since 2016 is that he's actually been more responsive to that than uh, I, I even expected him to be. You know, th this is one of the reasons I was saying earlier that, like, it was the antagonism from the Democratic establishment that made me more uh, open to siding with him. Another thing is that he's he has not moved right 
uh, overall. I mean, you know, there, there are those moments where it's questionable, but uh, I mean, to to a surprising extent, he is willing to be accountable to people who are critical of him on Palestine or, you know, on questions of immigration. Uh, he's consistently moved to the left on those things uh, based on criticism from movements. Yeah, I mean, that seems encouraging. Yeah, anyone saying that you shouldn't criticize him, I mean, that's just, like... Fuck that. I like, mean, I, yeah. I got into yeah. an argument with a co-worker the other day about this. Which one could that have been? Say who he is. Oh, I would Brendan just say, like, Finn. well, you might be a politician, but I'm not. Like, I don't, I'm not, like, a running for Congress or anything. I'm yeah, just, right. I'm, I'm going to speak my mind. Like, That's not our job. The idea that if we push him to adopt uh, politically unpopular positions... It's going to hurt him in the general. Now, he uses this moratorium on deportations as the example. I don't know if folks like this would be so chill about it if he backslid on, say, Medicare for all. Right. Yeah, right. Like, it makes me wonder. And Medicare for all also isn't polling as well as the public option among the general population. So if he just wanted to win, there's an argument that he should do that. And look how well he's doing with uh, Latinx voters, right? I mean, I'm sure that his immigration policies are a huge part of that, not just Medicare for all, but also obviously people on the front lines of this. Yeah, like they are part of the working class. Of I mean, course. I think there's just simply a difference between people who uh, want to hold him accountable on those issues from the left or from the position of movements versus those people who are opportunistically using those types of issues uh, to t try to bring him down from the right, which you do see from a lot of the other candidates and using adopting cynically this kind of mm -hmm. rhetoric of uh, social justice or, or uh, identity politics or whatever, uh, who are not actually presenting any kind of policy that would be more beneficial. And now I'm going to sound corny as hell, but this gets back to what we were talking about before is like, he actually is a politician who you can tell for all, whatever bad you want to say about Bernie Sanders. And obviously there's a lot to critique about him as a person, as a politician, right? He actually believes in something. So yeah. when, for example, in that debate, when they tried to do the gotcha thing where they're like, well, you would let the Boston bomber vote. You say that all people in prison even should be able to vote. You'd even let the Boston bomber do it. And he's like, yes, I would. <laughs> I mean, that is so much different from what people are used to. And it's not because Bernie's like a particularly good guy or cogent guy per se is because he has this vision of democratic socialism where you don't back down on these particular things. If you things. have a principle, yeah. it a applies principle. in every case. And, exactly. he, and he still needs to win the primary, right? So, like, I would hope that folks in the Bernie Sanders campaign are able to see that his consistency is one thing that people like about him across the political spectrum and weigh that against the value of backsliding or even appearing to waffle on any of these crucial issues. Well, I got to say um, that there might be listeners out there. They might be of different tendencies. Uh, they might believe different things. They might have a different sort of relationship in their minds uh, with, uh, you know, this Bernie Sanders movement. But I got to say that as this builds, hopefully it's going to become like a, gra a grab bag that everybody can get a piece of. You know, if you're a democratic socialist, there, there should be, as this movement picks up, more and more DSA meetings and uh, C-SPAN viewing parties for you to check out. If you're a syndicalist, you know, there should be more obscure unions that you can form, like spreadsheet workers unions out there. If you're a tanky, I'm sure as time goes on with this Sanders movement, there'll be a ton of flag emojis for you to put <laughs> in your uh, handle on Twitter. Trots, maybe 57 more flavors of uh, sect. Leftcoms, uh, there'll be tons of open panels on value form theory and even insurrectionaries, I'd say. 
in this grab bag that there will still be banks to rob and houses to squat. So even if you're not with all of us, I think there's a little something for everybody. Do you guys want to talk about uh, what happens if Bernie, if they steal it from him? Because I think it's important that we mention that this Milwaukee thing is coming up. Yeah, sure. I, I just see Jamie has here in our show notes, hashtag Bernie or Vest. I did not put that there. Oh, somebody put that there. Was that okay, I, I've seen that, but I actually, I don't know what that means. Oh, what does it let's, mean? let's talk it out. Tell me what it means. I think it's Andy's, Andy's looking coy right it's now. A, yeah, there's, there's a hashtag... Hashtag Bernie or Vest, that's basically, it basically means like if they take it from Bernie, then there's going to be a riot. But I think it could also mean like if you oh, want to give it. Oh, is Vest like the gilet jaune? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. like, it, I think it could also mean like if you want to give it to someone like Macron, like a centrist technocrat, then look what happened in France. Yeah. This so, is a nice option. So I don't know <laughs> if it's so much a movement. It's just an idea of saying like, you know, I, I, people want stability, but sometimes stability isn't actually so stable. Uh, but it also could mean like, you know, get ready for serious trouble if you steal it from the majority of the Democratic. Yeah, I'm sorry. If 771 people decide to make the decision by themselves about who the nominee is, that, that, that is an authoritarian measure, right? That, that, that merits a, uh, direct action, a gilet jaune for the United States. And I, and I just say like what Andy was saying, I think it's important whether you started this excellent hashtag burning or vest or whether you're just piqued by the idea of it, right? It is the right idea, whether that tactic is correct or not, because people need to already be thinking right now how they're going to be interacting Mm -hmm. with this larger, you know, democratic socialist movement moving forward. Cause we can't get to the point where he becomes president or they steal it from him and we're not prepared to hit the streets and think yeah. about tactics and, and on the shop floor. I mean, people need to stop talking about McGovern and start talking about Humphrey. This is the situation. Humphrey was also a losing candidate. You know, the compromise candidate that the, the establishment uh, imposed was a losing candidate. You know, uh, so there's no uh, kind of high ground there. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the secret to Bernie or Vest is actually it's Bernie and Vest yeah. because as we all know, it's going to take a huge amount of outside pressure and direct action to pass any of the policies mm-hmm. that he's talking about. But, you know, in the short term, sure, if we can, like, trick them into thinking that they can get out of that kind of thing <laughs> by uh, fucking just letting Bernie be the nominee. Sure. I also want to point out the large amount of human misery and suffering that is going to occur if they take it from him and we are forced to riot in the streets and then be put down by an authoritarian police state. And I would hope that liberals are sympathetic to these kinds of (laughs) harm reduction arguments. White moderate liberals, always sensible when people start taking insurrectionary street action. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, uh, again, like it's, I think super important to start thinking about these things now. But it's not just on our terms, right? It's also on their terms that it would be a violation. Right. On the terms of representative democracy, if you claim to believe in that, this is a violation even of that principle. They can only claim it because as we saw with the superdelegate shit and that whole history and what the Democratic Party is, it is not a democratic institution. People need to Mm -hmm. stop being surprised when these people try to do this shit. You know, it's, it's, it's in the nature of it. Well, I know from talking to Faye Eckler that the Socialist Rifle Association will be in Milwaukee fully armed if that uh, tickles anyone's fancy or what's the name of the socialist alternative in uh, Canada or I'm sorry, uh, councilwoman in Seattle. Kashama Sawant. Yes, thank you. Kashama Sawant uh, has called for, I think it's a it's a slogan, at least now. I'm not sure who's working towards it, but they should a uh, million in Milwaukee. 
you know, breaking off the old uh, Million Man March type idea. And uh, I think that is a great fucking idea because Milwaukee, the convention is what, this summer, right? In uh, July. July, In July. So in July, right, regardless of whether Bernie is the nominee or not, regardless of whether they steal it from him or not, there still needs to be people in those streets out there to be putting pressure, not just on those people, but also let the Bernie folks know, like, look, all these people are out here and mobilized and ready to rock. So if folks have no plans for July, you know, I'm sure the weather will be nice. I'm sure it'll be beautiful in Milwaukee. I think all listeners should start thinking about maybe buying some bus tickets, maybe buying start some vests. Yeah, some some <laughs> yellow vests perhaps. Because I will say this, uh if we are going to destroy the Democratic Party. And again, even if Sanders wins, I'd love to see that happen, this retrograde <laughs> institution. What better place to build the party than Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was the place, the congressional district, where they threw up the first socialist party uh, congressperson in the United States in 1910, Victor Berger, right? It was also the birthplace of sewer social. Yeah, Victor Berger. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Different Vic Berger. <laughs> nice. Nah, yeah. I wonder if they're related. But uh, yeah, cue some weird, like, bizarre video right now of Eugene Debs, like, picking his <laughs> nose or something like that. Uh, it was also, of course, uh, Milwaukee um, was also the birth of the Progressive Party, right? Another third party in the United States under Robert La Follette. So if we must destroy the Democrats one way or the other, what better place to build the workers party whether that's electoral or not but in milwaukee i think it's perfect yeah i mean i was talking about this with sam the other day and uh he was kind of a downer about it um he was like well if that happens what this means is just like a hundred years of republican rule because he doesn't believe that the workers party would necessarily be electorally successful and you know what maybe he's right but I still think it's worth a try because the alternative is far fucking worse. Yeah. And when I say the party, I, I mean it even in like a Jody Dean sort of way or even like an invisible committee sort of way. You know, maybe we'll just like create some weird fucked up sex communes in Milwaukee. Who knows? Yeah. We need to expand people's concept of what party actually means. Uh, what better time than after we've destroyed the Dems? All right. Cool. Good. All right. Thanks, Suja. My pleasure. Meet us in the phone. <laughs> All these miscontaminators sent the company director. Miss the price the dignity of cheeky spoken labor. Two different routes to an industrial heaven. Work for us in Parliament and all will be forgiven. It's the fear of being sacked that lets the boss step up the pace. Cause the minute you step out of line, that someone took your place.
Take your democratic choice, take a scheme or stall. Chocolate's wrist on YTS, CP's ES. Company profits doubled, wages chopped in half. Chocolate's wrist on YTS, CP's ES. Take your democratic choice, take a scheme or stall. Company profits doubled, wages chopped in half. Take your democratic choice, take a scheme or stall. 